0: Why is Bautrelet receiving threatening notes on his way back to a stale and stagnant crime scene? Maurice LeBlanc, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all of our financial supporters We couldn't do this without you. We really try to make your support worth your while. For a $5 monthly donation, you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook download. Give more, and you get more. It kind of cracks open the website for you, so you can easily build out your classic audiobook library. And, you help give more folks like you the chance to discover the classics in a curated, and easily accessible format. Go to ClassicTalesAudioBooks.com today and become a financial supporter. You'll be glad you did. Thank you so much. If it's more convenient, we are streaming our episodes through YouTube now. A link can be found in the comments section for today's episode. For those of you who enjoy the personal moments, I've decided to begin to release those stories as a special feature you can access in the app. That way they don't get in the way here, but for those who enjoy them, they are still available through the app. The story so far. Young Isidore Beautrelet has uncovered a plot of Arsène Lupin's to steal certain valuable paintings from Monsieur de Gevre, replacing them with copies. During the heist, Monsieur de Val, Monsieur de Gevre's secretary, was killed, and a man was shot while trying to abscond with the paintings. The wounded man was never found or traced, he simply disappeared. And now, The Hollow Needle, Part 3 of 7, by Maurice Leblanc. A few minutes later, and in spite of the entreaties of Monsieur Fiul, who would gladly have made further use of this fascinating auxiliary, Isidore Bautrelet, whose holidays ended that day, went off by the Dieppe road. He stepped from the train in Paris at five o'clock, and at eight o'clock returned to the Lycée Janson together with his schoolfellows. Canemard, after a minute but utterly useless exploration of the ruins of ambrou returned to Paris by the fast night train. On reaching his apartment in the Rue Pégolais, he found an express letter awaiting him. Monsieur l'inspecteur principal, finding that I had a little time to spare at the end of the day, I have succeeded in collecting a few additional particulars which are sure to interest you. Arsène Lupin has been living in Paris for twelve months under the name of Etienne de Vaudreuil, It is a name which you will often come across in the society notes or the sporting columns of the newspapers. He is a great traveller and is absent for long periods, during which, by his own account, he goes hunting tigers in Bengal or blue foxes in Siberia. He is supposed to be in business of some kind, although nobody is able to say for certain what his business is. His present address is 38 Rue Marbeuf and I will call your attention to the fact that the Rue Marbeuf is close to post-office number forty-five. Since Thursday, the twenty-third of April, the day before the burglary at ambrou there has been no news at all of Étienne de Vaudreuil. With very many thanks for the kindness which you have shown me, believe me to be, Monsieur l'Inspecteur Principal, yours sincerely, Isidore Boutrelet. P.S please on no account think that it cost me any great trouble "'to obtain this information. "'On the very morning of the crime, "'while Monsieur Fieule was pursuing his examination "'before a few privileged persons, "'I had the fortunate inspiration to glance at the runaway's cap "'before the sham flyman came to change it. "'The hatter's name was enough, as you may imagine, "'to enable me to find the clue "'that led to the identification of the purchaser and his address.' The next morning, Ganimard called at 36 rue Marbeuf. After questioning the concierge, he made him open the door of the ground floor flat on the right, a very comfortable apartment, elegantly furnished, in which, however, he discovered nothing beyond some cinders in the fireplace. Two friends had come, four days earlier, to burn all compromising papers. But just as he was leaving, Ganimard passed the postman, Who was bringing a letter for Monsieur de Vaudreuil. That afternoon, the public prosecutor was informed of the case and ordered the letter to be given up. It bore an American postmark and contained the following lines in English Dear Sir, I write to confirm the answer which I gave your representative. As soon as you have Monsieur de Gevre's four pictures in your possession, you can forward them as arranged. You may add the rest if you are able to succeed, which I doubt. An unexpected business requires my presence in Europe, and I shall reach Paris at the same time as this letter. You will find me at the Grand Hotel. Yours faithfully, Ephraim B. Harlington. That same day, Ganimar applied for a warrant and took Mr. E.B. Harlington, an American citizen, to the police station on a charge of receiving and conspiracy. Thus, within the space of twenty-four hours, all the threads of the plot had been unraveled, thanks to the really unforeseen clues supplied by a schoolboy of seventeen. In twenty-four hours, what had seemed inexplicable became simple and clear. In twenty-four hours, the scheme devised by the accomplices to save their leader was baffled. The capture of Arzen Lupin wounded, and dying was no longer in doubt. His gang was disorganized. The address of his establishment in Paris and the name which he assumed were known, and for the first time, one of his cleverest and most carefully elaborated feats was seen through before he had been able to ensure its complete execution. An immense clamor of astonishment, admiration, and curiosity arose among the public, Already the Rouen journalist, in a very able article, had described the first examination of the sixth-form pupil, laying stress upon his personal charm, his simplicity of manner, and his quiet assurance. The indiscretions of Ganimard and Monsieur Fieul, indiscretions to which they yielded in spite of themselves, under an impulse that proved stronger than their professional pride, suddenly enlightened the public as to the part played by Isidore Boutrelai in recent events. He alone had done everything. To him alone, the merit of the victory was due. The excitement was intense. Isidore Boutrelai awoke to find himself a hero, and the crowd, suddenly infatuated, insisted upon the fullest information regarding its new favorite. The reporters were there to supply it. They rushed to the assault of the Lycée Janson de Sailly, waited for the day boarders to come out after school hours, and picked up all that related, however remotely, to Beautrelay. It was in this way that they learned the reputation which he enjoyed among his school fellows, who called him the rival of Sherlock Holmes. Thanks to his powers of logical reasoning, with no further data than those which he was able to gather from the papers, he had time after time, proclaimed the solution of very complicated cases long before they were cleared up by the police. It had become a game at the Lycée Jeanson to put difficult questions and intricate problems to Boutrelet, and it was astonishing to see with what unhesitating and analytical power, and by means of what ingenious deductions, he made his way through the thickest darkness. Ten days before the arrest of Joris, the grocer, he showed what could be done with the famous umbrella. In the same way, he declared from the beginning, in the matter of the St. Cloud mystery, that the concierge was the only possible murderer. But most curious of all was the pamphlet which was found circulating among the boys at the school, a typewritten pamphlet signed by Bautrelet and manifolded to the number of ten copies. It was entitled, Arsène Lupin and His Method, showing in how far the latter is based upon tradition and in how far original, followed by a comparison between English humor and French irony. It contained a profound study of each of the exploits of Arsène Lupin, throwing the illustrious burglar's operations into extraordinary relief, showing the very mechanism of his way of setting to work, his special tactics, his letters to the press, his threats, the announcement of his thefts. In short, the whole bag of tricks which he employed to bamboozle his selected victim and throw him into such a state of mind that the victim almost offered himself to the plot contrived against him and that everything took place, as it were, "'with his own consent. "'And the work was so just, regarded as a piece of criticism, "'so penetrating, so lively, and marked by a wit so clever, "'and at the same time so cruel, "'that the lawyers at once passed over to his side, "'that the sympathy of the crowd was summarily transferred "'from Lupin to Bautrelet, "'and that, in the struggle engaged upon between the two, the schoolboy's victory was loudly proclaimed in advance. Be this as it may, both Monsieur Filleul and the Paris public prosecutor seemed jealously to reserve the possibility of this victory for him. On the one hand, they failed to establish Mr. Harlington's identity or to furnish a definite proof of his connection with Lupin's gang. Confederate or not, he preserved an obstinate silence. Nay more. After examining his handwriting, it was impossible to declare that he was the author of the intercepted letter. A Mr. Harlington, carrying a small portmanteau and a pocketbook stuffed with banknotes, had taken up his abode at the Grand Hotel. That was all that could be stated with certainty. On the other hand, at Dieppe, M. Fiul lay down on the positions which Bautrelet had won for him. He did not move a step forward, Around the individual whom Mademoiselle de Saint-Véran had taken for beau on the eve of the crime, the same mystery reigned as heretofore. The same obscurity also surrounded everything connected with the removal of the four Rubens pictures. What had become of them? And what road had been taken by the motor-car in which they were carried off during the night? Evidence of its passing was obtained at Luneray at Yerville, at Iveteau, and at Caudebec on Col, where it must have crossed the Seine at daybreak in the steam ferry. But, when the matter came to be inquired into more thoroughly, it was stated that the motor car was an uncovered one, and that it would have been impossible to pack four large pictures into it, unobserved by the ferryman. It was very probably the same car. But then the question cropped up again what had become of the four Rubenses. These were so many problems which Monsieur Filleul unanswered. Every day, his subordinates searched the quadrilateral of the ruins. Almost every day, he came to direct the explorations. But between that and discovering the refuge in which Lupin lay dying, if it were true that Bautrelet's opinion was correct, there was a gulf fixed which the worthy magistrate did not seem likely to cross. And so it was natural that they should turn once more to Isidore Bautrelet, as he alone had succeeded in dispelling shadows, which, in his absence, gathered thicker and more impenetrable than ever. Why did he not go on with the case? Seeing how far he had carried it, he required but an effort to succeed. The question was put to him by a member of the staff of the Grand Journal, who had obtained admission to the Lycée Janson by assuming the name of Bernot, the friend of Boutrelet's father. And Isidore very sensibly replied, My dear sir, there are other things besides Lupin in this world, other things besides stories about burglars and detectives. There is, for instance, the thing which is known as taking one's degree. Now I am going up for my examination in July. This is May, and I don't want to be plucked. "'What would my worthy parents say?' "'But what would he say "'if you delivered Arsene Lupin "'into the hands of the police?' "'Tut, there's a time for everything. "'In the next holidays—' "'Whitsuntide? "'Yes. "'I shall go down on Saturday, "'the 6th of June, "'by the first train.' "'And on the evening of that Saturday, "'Lupin will be taken. "'Will you give me until the Sunday?' "'asked Bautrelet, laughing. "'Why delay?' replied the journalist quite seriously. This inexplicable confidence, born of yesterday and already so strong, was felt with regard to the young man by one and all, even though, in reality, events had justified it only up to a certain point. No matter, people believed in him. Nothing seemed difficult to him. They expected from him what they were entitled to expect at most, from some phenomenon of penetration and intuition, of experience and skill. That day of the 6th of June was made to sprawl over all the papers. On the 6th of June, Isidore Bautrelet would take the fast train to Dieppe, and Lupin would be arrested on the same evening. Unless he escapes between this and then, objected the last remaining partisans of the adventurer. Impossible! every outlet is watched. Unless he has succumbed to his wounds then, said the partisans, who would have preferred their hero's death to his capture. And the retort was immediate. Nonsense! If Lupin were dead, his confederates would know it by now, and Lupin would be revenged. Boutrelet said so. And the 6th of June came. Half a dozen journalists were looking out for Isidore at the Gare Saint-Lazare, Two of them wanted to accompany him on his journey. He begged them to refrain. He started alone, therefore, in a compartment to himself. He was tired, thanks to a series of nights devoted to study, and soon fell asleep. He slept heavily. In his dreams, he had an impression that the train stopped at different stations and that people got in and out. When he awoke within sight of Rouen, he was still alone. But on the back of the opposite seat was a large sheet of paper, fastened with a pin to the grey cloth. It bore these words. Every man should mind his own business. Do you mind yours? If not, you must take the consequences. Capital, he exclaimed rubbing his hands with delight. Things are going badly in the adversary's camp. That threat is as stupid and vulgar as the sham flyman's. What a style! One can see that it wasn't composed by Lupin. The train threaded the tunnel that precedes the old Norman city. On reaching the station, Isidore took a few turns on the platform to stretch his legs. He was about to re-enter his compartment when a cry escaped him. As he passed the bookstall, he had read, in an absent-minded way, the following lines on the front page of a special edition of the Journal de Rouen, and their alarming sense suddenly burst upon him. Stop press news! We hear by telephone from Dieppe that the Château d'Ambroumacy was broken into last night by criminals who bound and gagged Mademoiselle de Chevre and carried off Mademoiselle de saint ferran Traces of blood have been seen at a distance of five hundred yards from the house, and a scarf has been found close by, which is also stained with blood. There is every reason to fear that the poor young girl has been murdered. Isidore Bautrelet completed his journey to Dieppe without moving a limb. Bent in two, with his elbows on his knees and his hands plastered against his face, he sat, thinking. At Dieppe he took a fly. At the door of ambrou he met the examining magistrate, who confirmed the horrible news. Do you know nothing more? asked Boutrelet. Nothing, I have only just arrived. At that moment, the sergeant of gendarmes came up to Monsieur Fiul and handed him a crumpled, torn, and discolored piece of paper, which he had picked up not far from the place where the scarf was found. Monsieur Filleul looked at it and gave it to Boutrelet, saying, I don't suppose this will help us much in our investigations. Isidore turned the paper over and over. It was covered with figures, dots, and signs, and presented the exact appearance, reproduced as follows: two dot one dot dot2.2 one dot dot Two dot four three dot two dot dot two dot dot four five dot dot two dot four dot dot two dot dot two dot four dot dot two D DF square nineteen F plus forty four triangle three five seven triangle thirteen dot five three dot, dot two dot dot two, five, dot two chapter three The Corpse At six o'clock in the evening, having finished all he had to do, Monsieur Filleul, accompanied by Monsieur Bredot, his clerk, stood waiting for the carriage which was to take him back to Dieppe. He seemed restless, nervous. Twice over, he asked, You haven't seen anything of young Bautrelet, I suppose? No, Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction. I can't say I have. Where on earth can he be? I haven't set eyes on him all day. Suddenly he had an idea, handed his portfolio to bredon ran round the chateau and made for the ruins. Isidore Bautrelet was lying near the cloisters, Flat on his face, with one arm folded under his head, on the ground carpeted with pine needles. He seemed drowsing. Hello, young man, what are you doing here? Are you asleep? I'm not asleep. I've been thinking. Ever since this morning, ever since this morning. It's not a question of thinking. One must see into things first, study facts, look for clues, establish connecting links. The time for thinking comes after, when one pieces all that together and discovers the truth. Yes, I know. That's the usual way, the right one, I dare say. Mine is different. I think first, I try above all, to get the general hang of the case, if I may so express myself. Then I imagine a reasonable and logical hypothesis which fits in with the general idea. And then, and not before, I examine the facts To see if they agree with my hypothesis and that's a funny method And a terribly complicated one It's a sure method, Monsieur Fiol, Which is more than can be said of yours Come, come, facts are facts With your ordinary sort of adversary, yes But given an enemy endowed with a certain amount of cunning The facts are those which he happens to have selected Take the famous clues upon which you base your inquiry. Why, he was at liberty to arrange them as he liked, and you see where that can lead you, into what mistakes and absurdities, when you are dealing with a man like Arsène Lupin, Sherlock Holmes himself fell into the trap. Arsène Lupin is dead. No matter. His gang remains, and the pupils of such a master are masters themselves. Monsieur Fiel took Isidore by the arm and leading him away. Words, young man, words. Here is something of more importance, listen to me. Ganimar is otherwise engaged at this moment, and will not be here for a few days. On the other hand, the Comte de Gèvres has telegraphed to Sherlock Holmes, who has promised his assistance next week. Now don't you think, young man, that it would be a feather in our cap— if we were able to say to those two celebrities on the day of their arrival, "Awfully sorry, gentlemen," but we couldn't wait. The business is done. It was impossible for Monsieur Fiole to confess helplessness with greater candor. Beaudry suppressed a smile, and pretending not to see through the worthy magistrate, replied, "I confess, Monsieur le Juge d'instruction, that if I was not present at your inquiry just now." It was because I hoped that you would consent to tell me the results. May I ask what you have learned? Well, last night, at eleven o'clock, the three gendarmes whom Sergeant Quevillon had left on guard at the chateau received a note from the sergeant telling them to hasten with all speed to Ouville, where they are stationed. They at once rode off, and when they arrived at Ouville, they discovered that they had been tricked, "'that the order was a forgery, "'and that there was nothing for them to do "'but return to Ambroumacy. "'This they did, accompanied by Sergeant Kevion, "'but they were away for an hour and a half, "'and during this time the crime was committed. "'In what circumstances? "'Very simple circumstances indeed. "'A ladder was removed from the farm buildings "'and placed against the second story of the chateau. "'A plane of glass was cut out and a window opened.' Two men, carrying a dark lantern, entered Mademoiselle de Chevre's room and gagged her before she could cry out. Then, after binding her with cords, they softly opened the door of the room in which Mademoiselle de Saint-Vérin was sleeping. Mademoiselle de Chevre heard a stifled moan, followed by the sound of a person struggling. A moment later, she saw two men carrying her cousin, who was also bound and gagged. They passed in front of her and went out through the window. Then Mademoiselle de Gevre, terrified and exhausted, fainted. But what about the dogs? I thought Monsieur de Gevre had bought two almost wild sheep-dogs, which were let loose at night. They were found dead, poisoned. By whom? Nobody could get near them. It is a mystery." The fact remains that the two men crossed the ruins without let or hindrance, and went out by the little door which we have heard so much about. They passed through the wood, following the line of the disused quarries. It was not until they were nearly half a mile from the chateau, at the foot of the tree known as the Great Oak, that they stopped and executed their purpose. If they came with the intention of killing Mademoiselle de Saint-Vérin, Why didn't they murder her in her room? I don't know. Perhaps the incident that settled their determination only occurred after they had left the house. Perhaps the girl succeeded in releasing herself from her bonds. In my opinion, the scarf, which was picked up, was used to fasten her wrists. In any case, the blow was struck at the foot of the great oak. I have collected indisputable proofs. But the body... THE BODY HAS NOT BEEN FOUND, BUT THERE IS NOTHING EXCESSIVELY SURPRISING IN THAT. AS A MATTER OF FACT, THE TRAIL WHICH I FOLLOWED BROUGHT ME TO THE CHURCH AT VARANGEVILLE AND THE OLD CEMETERY PERCHED ON THE TOP OF THE CLIFF. FROM THERE IT IS A SHEER PRECIPICE, A FALL OF OVER THREE HUNDRED FEET TO THE ROCKS AND THE SEA BELOW. IN A DAY OR TWO, A STRONGER TIDE THAN USUAL WILL CAST UP THE BODY ON THE BEACH. OBVIOUSLY, THIS IS ALL VERY SIMPLE, Yes, it is all very simple and doesn't trouble me in the least. Lupin is dead, his accomplices heard of it, and, to revenge themselves, have killed Mademoiselle de Saint-Vérin. These are facts which did not even require checking. But Lupin? What about him? What has become of him? In all probability, his confederates removed his corpse at the same time that they carried away the girl. But what proof have we? None at all any more than of his staying in the ruins, or of his death, or of his life. And that is the real mystery, Monsieur Boutrelet. The murder of Mademoiselle Raymond solves nothing. On the contrary, it only complicates matters. What has been happening during the past two months at the Chateau d'Ambrumacy? If we don't clear up the riddle, young man, others will give us the go-by. On what day are those others coming? Wednesday. Tuesday, perhaps. Boutrelet seemed to be making an inward calculation, and then declared, Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction, this is Saturday. I have to be back at school on Monday evening. Well, if you will have the goodness to be here at ten o'clock exactly on Monday morning, I will try to give you the key to the riddle. Really, Monsieur Boutrelet? Do you think so? Are you sure? I hope so, at any rate and where are you going now? I'm going to see if the facts consent to fit in with the general theory which I am beginning to perceive. And if they don't fit in? Well, Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction, said Boutrelet with a laugh, then it will be their fault, and I must look for others which will prove more tractable. Till Monday, then. Till Monday. A few minutes later, Monsieur Fioul was driving toward Dieppe, while Isidore mounted a bicycle, which he had borrowed from the Comte de Gèvres, and rode off along the road to Yerville and Caudebec on There was one point in particular on which the young man was anxious to form a clear opinion, because this just appeared to him to be the enemy's weakest point. Objects of the size of the four Rubens pictures cannot be juggled away. They were bound to be somewhere, granting that it was impossible to find them for the moment, might one not discover the road by which they had disappeared? What Bautrelet surmised was that the four pictures had undoubtedly been carried off in the motor car, but that before reaching Caudebec, they were transferred to another car, which had crossed the Seine either above Caudebec or below it. Now, the first horseboat down the stream was at Kielbeuf, a greatly frequented ferry and consequently, dangerous. Upstream, there was the ferry boat at Le Maillaret, a large but lonely market town lying well off the main road. By midnight, Isidore had covered the 35 or 40 miles to La Maillaret and was knocking at the door of an inn by the waterside. He slept there, and in the morning, questioned the ferryman. They consulted the counterfoils in the traffic book, No motor-car had crossed on Thursday, the twenty-third of April. A horse-drawn vehicle, then, suggested Boutrelet. A cart? A van? No, not either. Isidore continued his inquiries all through the morning. He was on the point of leaving for Kielboeuf, when the waiter of the inn at which he had spent the night said, I came back from my thirteen days' training on the morning of which you are speaking, and I saw a cart but it did not go across. Really? Now they unloaded it onto a flatboat, a barge of sorts, which was moored to the wharf. And where did the cart come from? Oh, I knew it at once. It belonged to Master vatanel the carter. And where does he live? At Luveto. Boutrelet consulted his military map. The hamlet of Luveto lay where the high road between Ivato and Codbeck was crossed by a little winding road that ran through the woods to La Maillere. Not until six o'clock in the evening did Isidore succeed in discovering Master vatanel in a pot house. Master Vatinel was one of those artful old Normans who were always on their guard, who distrust strangers, but who are unable to resist the lure of a gold coin or the influence of a glass or two. Well, yes, sir, The men in the motor-car that morning had told me to meet them at five o'clock at the crossroads. They gave me four great big things as high as that. One of them went with me, and we carted the things to the barge. You speak of them as if you knew them before. I should think I did know them. It was the sixth time they were employing me. Isidore gave a start. The sixth time, you say? And since when? Why, why? every day before that one, to be sure. But it was other things then, great blocks of stone, or else smaller, longish ones, wrapped up in newspapers, which they carried as if they were worth I don't know what. Oh, I mustn't touch those on any account. What's the matter? You've turned quite white. Nothing. The heat of the room. Bertolet staggered out into the air. The joy... The surprise of the discovery made him feel giddy. He went back very quietly to Varangeville, slept in the village, spent an hour at the mayor's offices with the schoolmaster, and returned to the chateau. There he found a letter waiting him, care of Monsieur le Comte de Gèvres. It consisted of a single line. Second warning, hold your tongue. If not, come. He muttered, I shall have to make up my mind And take a few precautions for my personal safety If not, as they say It was nine o'clock He strolled about among the ruins And then lay down near the cloisters and closed his eyes Well, young man, are you satisfied with the results of your campaign? It was Monsieur Filleul Delighted, Monsieur le juge d'instruction "'By which you mean to say—' "'By which I mean to say that I am prepared to keep my promise, "'in spite of this very uninviting letter.' "'He showed the letter to M. Fiul. "Pooh, stuff and nonsense!' cried the magistrate. "'I hope you won't let that prevent you—' "'From telling you what I know?' "'No,' Monsieur le Juge d'instruction. "'I have given my word, and I shall keep it. "'In less than ten minutes you shall know—' "'A part—' of the truth. a part? Yes. In my opinion, Lupin's hiding place does not constitute the whole of the problem, far from it, but we shall see later on. Monsieur Boutrelet, nothing that you do could astonish me now. But how were you able to discover, oh, in a very natural way, in the letter from old man Harlington to Monsieur Etienne de Vaudray, or rather, to Lupin? The intercepted letter? Yes, there is a phrase which always puzzled me. After saying that the pictures are to be forwarded as arranged, he goes on to say, You may add the rest, if you are able to succeed, which I doubt. Yes, I remember. What was this rest? A work of art? A curiosity? The chateau contains nothing of any value besides the Rubenses and the tapestries. Jewelry? There is very little, and what there is of it is not worth much. In that case, what could it be? On the other hand, was it conceivable that people so prodigiously clever as Lupin should not have succeeded in adding the rest which they themselves had evidently suggested? A difficult undertaking, very likely. Exceptional, surprising, I dare say, but possible and therefore certain, since Lupin wished it. And yet he failed. Nothing has disappeared. He did not fail. Something has disappeared. Yes, the Rubenses, but. The Rubenses and something besides. Something which has been replaced by a similar thing, as in the case of the Rubenses. Something much more uncommon, much rarer, much more valuable than the Rubenses. Well, what? You're killing me with this procrastination. While talking, The two men had crossed the ruins, turned toward the little door, and were now walking beside the chapel. Bautrelet stopped. "'Do you really want to know, Monsieur Le Jouze d'Instruction?' "'Of course I do.' Bautrelet was carrying a walking stick, a strong, knotted stick. Suddenly, with a backstroke of this stick, he smashed one of the little statues that adorned the front of the chapel. "'Why, you're mad!' Shouted Monsieur Fiol, beside himself, rushing at the broken pieces of the statue. You're mad! That old saint was an admirable bit of work! An admirable bit of work! echoed Isidore, giving a whirl which brought down the Virgin Mary. Monsieur Fiol took hold of him round the body. Young man, I won't allow you to commit. A wise man of the East came toppling to the ground, followed by a manger containing the mother and child. If you stir another limb, I fire. The Comte de Gevre had appeared upon the scene and was cocking his revolver. Boutrelet burst out laughing. That's right, Monsieur le Comte. Blaze away. Take a shot at them as if you were at a fair. Wait a bit. This chap, carrying his head in his hands. Saint John the Baptist fell, shattered to pieces. Oh! Shouted the Count, pointing his revolver, You young vandal! Those masterpieces! Sham, monsieur le comte! What? What's that? Roared monsieur Féule, wresting the comte de Gèvre's weapon from him. Sham! Repeated Boutrelet. Paper, pulp, and plaster! Oh, nonsense! It can't be true! Hollow plaster, I tell you! Nothing at all! The count stooped and picked up a sliver of a statuette. Look at it, Monsieur Comte, and see for yourself it's plaster. Rusty, musty, mildewed plaster, made to look like old stone. But plaster for all that. Plaster casts. That's all that remains of your perfect masterpiece. That's what they've done in just a few days. That's what the Sieur Charpenay, who copied the Rubenses, prepared a year ago. He seized Monsieur Féuil's arm in his turn. "'What do you think of it, Monsieur Le Jouze d'Instruction? "'Isn't it fine? "'Isn't it grand? "'Isn't it gorgeous? "'The chapel has been removed. "'A whole Gothic chapel collected stone by stone. "'A whole population of statues "'captured and replaced by these chaps in stucco. "'One of the most magnificent specimens "'of an incomparable artistic period confiscated. "'The chapel, in short, stolen.' "'Isn't it immense?' "'Ah, Monsieur Le Juste d'Instruction, "'what a genius the man is!' "'You're allowing yourself to be carried away, "'Monsieur Boutrelet. "'One can't be carried away too much, monsieur, "'when one has to do with people like that. "'Everything above the average deserves our admiration, "'and this man soars above everything. "'There is in his flight a wealth of imagination, "'a force and power, a skill and freedom.' "'that send a thrill through me.' "'Pity he's dead,' said Monsieur Fule, with a grin. "'He'd have ended by stealing the Towers of Notre-Dame.' "'Isidore shrugged his shoulders. "'Don't laugh, monsieur. "'He upsets you, dead though he may be. "'I don't say not. "'I don't say not, Monsieur Boutreville. "'I confess that I feel a certain excitement "'now that I am about to set eyes on him.' "'unless, indeed, his friends have taken away the body, "'and always admitting,' observed the Comte de Chevre, "'that it was really he who was wounded by my poor niece.' "'It was he, beyond a doubt, Monsieur le Comte,' "'declared Bautrelet. "'It was he, believe me, who fell in the ruins under the shot "'fired by Mademoiselle de saint Varin. "'It was he whom she saw rise and who fell again.' and dragged himself toward the cloisters to rise again for the last time, this by a miracle, which I will explain to you presently, to rise again for the last time and reach this stone shelter, which was to be his tomb. And Bautrelet struck the threshold of the chapel with his stick. Eh, what? cried Monsieur Fiel, taken aback. His tomb? Do you think that that impregnable hiding-place, it was here? There!" he repeated. "But we searched it!" "Badly." "There is no hiding place here," protested Monsieur de Gevre. "I know the chapel." "Yes, there is, Monsieur le Comte. Go to the mayor's office at Varangeville, where they have collected all the papers that used to be in the old parish of Ambrusi, and you will learn from those papers, which belong to the eighteenth century, that there is a crypt below the chapel. This script doubtless, dates back to the Roman chapel, upon the site of which the present one was built. "'But how can Lupin have known this detail?' asked M. Fiol. "'In a very simple manner, because of the works which he had to execute to take away the chapel. "'Come, come, Monsieur Boutrelet, you are exaggerating. "'He has not taken away the whole chapel. "'Look, not one of the stones of this top course has been touched.' Obviously, he cast and took away only what had a financial value. The wrought stones, the sculptures, the statuettes, the whole treasure of little columns and carved arches. He did not trouble about the groundwork of the building itself. The foundations remain. Therefore, Monsieur Boutrelet, Lupin was not able to make his way into the crypt. At that moment, Monsieur de Gevre, who had been to call a servant, returned with the key of the chapel. He opened the door. The three men entered. After a short examination, Bautrelet said, The flagstones on the ground have been respected, as one might expect, but it is easy to perceive that the high altar is nothing more than a cast. Now, generally, the staircase leading to the crypt opens in front of the high altar and passes under it. What do you conclude? I conclude "'that Lupin discovered the crypt "'when working at the altar. "'The Count sent for a pickaxe "'and Bautrelet attacked the altar. "'The plaster flew to right and left. "'He pushed the pieces aside as he went on. "'By Jove!' muttered Monsieur Fiel. "'I am eager to know. "'So am I,' said Bautrelet, "'whose face was pale with anguish. "'He hurried his blows, and suddenly,' His pickaxe, which until then had encountered no resistance, struck against a harder material and rebounded. There was a sound of something falling in, and all that remained of the altar went tumbling into the gap after the block of stone which had been struck by the pickaxe. Bautrelay bent forward. A puff of cold air rose to his face. He lit a match and moved it from side to side over the gap. The staircase begins farther forward than I expected, under the entrance flags almost. I can see the last steps there, right at the bottom. Is it deep? Three or four yards. The steps are very high, and there are some missing. It is hardly likely, said Monsieur Fiole, that the accomplices can have had time to remove the body from the cellar when they were engaged in carrying off Mademoiselle de Saint-Vérin during the short absence of the gendarmes. Besides, why should they? Now, in my opinion, the body is here. A servant brought them a ladder. Bautrelet let it down through the opening and fixed it, after groping among the fallen fragments, holding the two uprights firmly. Will you go down, Monsieur Fiel? He asked. The magistrate, holding a candle in his hand, ventured down the ladder. The Comte de Gevre followed him, and Boutrelet, in his turn, placed his foot on the first rung. Mechanically, he counted 18 rungs, while his eyes examined the crypt, where the glimmer of the candle struggled against the heavy darkness. But at the bottom, his nostrils were assailed by one of those foul and violent smells which linger in the memory for many a long day. And suddenly, a trembling hand Seized him by the shoulder. Well, what is it? Beaucherlet, stammered Monsieur Filleul. Beaucherlet. He could not get out a word for terror. Come, Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction, compose yourself. Beaucherlet. He is there. Eh? Yes. There was something under the big stone that broke off the altar. I pushed the stone and I touched, I shall never, shall never forget. Where is it? On this side. Don't you notice the smell? And then look, see. He took the candle and held it towards a motionless form, stretched upon the ground. Oh, exclaimed Bautrelet in a horror-stricken tone. The three men bent down quickly. The corpse lay half-naked, lean, frightful. The flesh, which had the greenish hue of soft wax, appeared in places through the torn clothes. But the most hideous thing, the thing that had drawn a cry of terror from the young man's lips, was the head, the head which had just been crushed by the block of stone, the shapeless head a repulsive mass in which not one feature could be distinguished. Boutrelet took four strides up the ladder and fled into the daylight and the open air. Monsieur Fiel found him again lying flat on the ground, with his hands glued to his face. I congratulate you, Boutrelet, he said. In addition to the discovery of the hiding place, There are two points on which I have been able to verify the correctness of your assertions. First of all, the man on whom Mademoiselle de saint fired was indeed Arsène Lupin, as you said from the start. Also, he lived in Paris under the name of Étienne de Vaudreuil. His linen is marked with the initials E.V. That ought to be sufficient proof, I think. Don't you? Isidore did not stir. Monsieur Le Comte has gone to have a horse put to. They are sending for Dr. Jouet, who will make the usual examination. In my opinion, death must have taken place a week ago, at least. The state of decomposition of the corpse. But you don't seem to be listening. Yes, yes. What I say is based upon absolute reasons. Thus, for instance— M. Fiel continued his demonstrations, without, however, obtaining any more manifest marks of attention. But M. de Gèvre's return interrupted his monologue. The comte brought two letters. One was to tell him that Sherlock Holmes would arrive next morning. Capital, cried M. Fiel, joyfully. Inspector Ganimard will be here too. It will be delightful. The other letter is for you, M. Le Juste d'Instruction, said the comte. Better and better, said Monsieur Fiuel, after reading it. There will certainly not be much for those two gentlemen to do. Monsieur Bautrolet, I hear from Dieppe that the body of a young woman was found by some shrimpers this morning on the rocks. Bautrolet gave a start. What's that? The body of a young woman. The body is horribly mutilated, they say and it would be impossible to establish the identity but for a tiny, narrow, little gold-curb bracelet on the right arm, which has become encrusted in the swollen skin. Now, Mademoiselle de saint Veran used to wear a gold-curb bracelet on her right arm. Evidently, therefore, Monsieur le Comte, this is the body of your poor niece, which the sea must have washed to that distance. What do you think, Pautrelet? Nothing. Nothing. Or rather, uh, yes, everything is connected, as you see And there is no link missing in my argument All the facts, one after another, however contradictory However disconcerting they may appear End by supporting the supposition which I imagined from the first I don't understand You soon will Remember I promised you the whole truth But it seems to me... A little patience, Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction. So far you have had no cause to complain of me. It is a fine day. Go for a walk. Lunch at the chateau. Smoke your pipe. I shall be back by four o'clock. As for my school, well, I don't care. I shall take the night train. They had reached the outhouses at the back of the chateau. Bauterlet jumped on his bicycle and rode away. At Dieppe, he stopped at the office of the local paper, the Vigie, and examined the file for the last fortnight. Then he went on to the market town of Anvermeur, six or seven miles farther. At Envermeur, he talked to the mayor, the rector, and the local policeman. The church clock struck three. His inquiry was finished. He returned singing for joy. He pressed upon the two pedals turn by turn with an equal and powerful rhythm. His chest opened wide to take in the keen air that blew from the sea. And from time to time, he forgot himself to the extent of uttering shouts of triumph to the sky, when he thought of the aim which he was pursuing, and of the success that was crowning his efforts. Ambrusi appeared in sight. He coasted at full speed down the slope leading to the chateau. The top rows of venerable trees that lined the road "'seemed to run to meet him "'and to vanish behind him forthwith. "'And all at once he uttered a cry. "'In a sudden vision he had seen a rope "'stretched from one tree to another across the road. "'His machine gave a jolt and stopped short. "'Bautrelet was flung three yards forward "'with immense violence, "'and it seemed to him that only chance, "'a miraculous chance, "'caused him to escape a heap of pebbles "'on which, logically, he ought to have broken his head.' He lay for a few seconds, stunned. Then, all covered with bruises, with the skin flayed from his knees, he examined the spot. On the right lay a small wood, by which his aggressor had no doubt fled. Boutrelai untied the rope. To the tree on the left around which it was fastened, a small piece of paper was fixed with string. Boutrelai unfolded it and read, The third and last warning. He went on to the chateau, put a few questions to the servants, and joined the examining magistrate in a room on the ground floor, at the end of the right wing, where Monsieur Féule used to sit in the course of his operations. Monsieur Féule was writing, with his clerk seated opposite him. At a sign from him, the clerk left the room, and the magistrate exclaimed, Why, what have you been doing to yourself, Monsieur Boutrelet? Your hands are covered with blood!" "It's nothing, it's nothing," said the young man, "just a fall occasioned by this rope, which was stretched in front of my bicycle. I will only ask you to observe that the rope comes from the chateau. Not longer than twenty minutes ago, it was being used to dry linen on, outside the laundry." "You don't mean to say so!" "Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction, I am being watched here, by someone in the very heart of the place, who can see me, who can hear me, and who, minute by minute, observes my actions and knows my intentions. Do you think so? I am sure of it. It is for you to discover him, and you will have no difficulty in that. As for myself, I want to have finished and to give you the promised explanations, I have made faster progress than our adversaries expected, and I am convinced that they mean to take vigorous measures on their side. The circle is closing around me. The danger is approaching. I feel it. Nonsense, Boutrelet. You wait and see. For the moment, let us lose no time. And first, a question on a point which I want to have done with it once. Have you spoken to anybody of that document with Sergeant Cavion picked up and handed you in my presence? No, indeed, not to a soul. But do you attach any value, the greatest value? It's an idea of mine, an idea, I confess, which does not rest upon a proof of any kind. For up to the present I have not succeeded in deciphering the document, and therefore I am mentioning it, so that we need not come back to it. Bautrelay pressed his hand on Monsieur Fiul's and whispered, Don't speak. There's someone listening outside. The gravel creaked. Boutrelet ran to the window and leaned out. There's no one there, but the border has been trodden down. We can easily identify the footprints. He closed the window and sat down again. You see, Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction, the enemy has even ceased to take the most ordinary precautions. He has not the time left. He too feels that the hour is urgent. Let us be quick, therefore, and speak, since they do not wish us to speak. He laid the document on the table, and held it in position, unfolded. One observation, Monsieur Le Juge d'Instruction, to begin with. The paper consists almost entirely of dots and figures, and in the first three lines and the fifth, the only ones which we have to do at present, for the fourth seems to present an entirely different character. Not one of those figures is higher than the figure five. There is, therefore, a great chance that each of these figures represents one of the five vowels, taken in alphabetical order. Let us put down the result. He wrote on a separate piece of paper, E.A.A.E.E.A.A.A.A.E.E.E.E.E.E. O I dot E dot E dot OU dot E dot O dot E dot E dot O dot dot UI dot E dot E U dot E Then he continued As you see this does not give us much to go upon. The key is at the same time very easy because the inventor has contented himself with replacing the vowels by figures and the consonants by dots, and very difficult, if not impossible, because he has taken no further trouble to complicate the problem. It is certainly pretty obscure. Let us try to throw some light upon it. The second line is divided into two parts, and the second part appears in such a way that it probably forms one word. If we now seek to replace the intermediary dots by consonants, we arrive at the conclusion, after searching and casting about, that the only consonants which are logically able to support the vowels are also logically able to produce only one word, the word demoiselle. That would refer to Mademoiselle de Gevre and Mademoiselle de Saint-Vérin, undoubtedly. And do you see nothing more? Yes. I also note an hiatus in the middle of the last line, and if I apply a similar operation to the beginning of the line, I at once see that the only consonant able to take the place of the dot between the diphthongs FAI and UI is the letter G, and that, when I have thus formed the first five letters of the word, AIGUI, it is natural and inevitable that, with the next two dots and the final E, I should arrive at the word Aiguille, in English, needle. Yes, the word aiguille forces itself upon us. Finally, for the last word, I have three vowels and three consonants. I cast about again, I try all the letters, one after another, and starting with the principle that the two first letters are necessary consonants, I find that three words apply. Fleuve, in English, river, Preuve, in English, proof, and Creuse, in English, "'hollow. "'I eliminate the words "'fleuve and preuve, "'as possessing no possible relation "'to a needle, "'and I keep the word "'cruise. "'Making "'hollow "'needle. "'By Jove, "'I admit that your solution "'is correct, "'because it needs must be, "'but how does it help us?' "'Not at all,' "'said Boutrelet, "'in a thoughtful tone. "'Not at all, "'for the moment. "'Later on we shall see.' I have an idea that a number of things are included in the puzzling conjunction of those two words, agier creuse. is troubling me at present is rather the material on which the document is written, the paper employed. Do they still manufacture this sort of rather coarse-grained parchment? And then this ivory colour, and those folds, the wear of those folds, and lastly, look, those marks of red sealing wax on the back. At that moment, Bautrelet was interrupted by Bredot, the magistrate's clerk, who opened the door and announced the unexpected arrival of the chief public prosecutor. Monsieur Fiel rose. Anything new? Is Monsieur le Procureur-General downstairs? No, Monsieur le Juge d'Instruction. Monsieur le Procureur-General has not left his carriage. He's only passing through Ambrumacy and begs you to be good enough to go down to him at the gate. He only has a word to say to you. That's curious, muttered Monsieur Fiel. However, we shall see. Excuse me, Boutrelet, I shan't be long. He went away. His footsteps sounded outside. Then the clerk closed the door, turned the key, and put it in his pocket. Hello, exclaimed Boutrelet, greatly surprised. What are you locking us in for? We shall be able to talk so much better, retorted Bredot. Boutrelet rushed toward another door, which led to the next room. He had understood. The accomplice was Bredot, the clerk of the examining magistrate himself. Bredot grinned. Don't hurt your fingers, my young friend. I have the key of that door too. There's the window, cried Boutrelet. Too late, said Bredot, planting himself in front of the casement. Revolver in hand. Every chance of retreat was cut off. There was nothing more for Isidore to do. Nothing, except to defend himself against the enemy who was revealing himself with such brutal daring. He crossed his arms. Good, mumbled the clerk. And now let us waste no time. He took out his watch. "'Our worthy Mr. Fiole will walk down to the gate. "'At the gate he will find nobody, of course. "'No more public prosecutor than my eye. "'Then he will come back. "'That gives us about four minutes. "'It will take me one minute to escape by this window, "'clear through the little door by the ruins, "'and jump on the motorcycle waiting for me. "'That leaves three minutes, which is just enough.' "'Bredeau was a queer sort of misshapen creature.' who balanced on a pair of very long spindle legs, a huge trunk, as round as the body of a spider and furnished with immense arms, a bony face and a low, small stubborn forehead pointed to the man's narrow obstinacy. Boutrelet felt a weakness in the legs and staggered. He had to sit down. Speak, he said. What do you want? The paper. I've been looking for it for three days. I haven't got it. You're lying. I saw you put it back in your pocketbook when I came in. Next? Next you must undertake to keep quite quiet. You're annoying us. Leave us alone and mind your own business. Our patience is at an end. He had come nearer, with the revolver still aimed at the young man's head, and spoke in a hollow voice, with a powerful stress on each syllable that he uttered. His eyes were hard his smile cruel. Boutrelet gave a shudder. It was the first time that he was experiencing the sense of danger, and such danger. He felt himself in the presence of an implacable enemy, endowed with blind and irresistible strength. And next? He asked, with less assurance in his voice. Next? Nothing. You will be free. We will forget. There was a pause. Then Bredo resumed. There is only a minute left. You must make up your mind. Come, old chap, don't be a fool. We are the stronger, you know. Always and everywhere. Quick, the paper. Isidore did not flinch. With a livid and terrified face, he remained master of himself nevertheless, and his brain remained clear amid the breakdown of his nerves. The little black hole of the revolver was pointing at six inches from his eyes. The finger was bent, and obviously pressing on the trigger. It only wanted a moment. The paper, repeated Bredo. If not, here it is, said Boutrelet. He took out his pocketbook and handed it to the clerk, who seized it eagerly. Capital, we've come to our senses. I've no doubt there's something to be done with you. You're troublesome, but full of common sense. I'll talk about it to my pals. And now I'm off. Goodbye. He pocketed his revolver and turned back the fastening of the window. There was a noise in the passage. Goodbye, he said again. I'm only just in time. But the idea stopped him. With a quick movement, he examined the pocketbook. Dumb and blast it. He grated through his teeth. The paper's not there. You've done me. He leaped into the room. Two shots rang out. Isidore in his turn had seized his pistol and fired. Missed, old chap, shouted Bredo. Your hand's shaking. You're afraid. They caught each other round the body and came down to the floor together. There was a violent and incessant knocking at the door. Isidore's strength gave way, and he was at once overcome by his adversary. It was the end. A hand was lifted over him, armed with a knife, and fell. A fierce pain burst into his shoulder. He let go. He had an impression of someone fumbling in the inside pocket of his jacket and taking the paper from it. Then, through the lowered veil of his eyelids, he half saw the man stepping over the windowsill. The same newspapers which, on the following morning, related the last episodes that had occurred at the Chateau d'Ambrumessy, the trickery at the chapel, the discovery of Arsène Lupin's body and of Raymond's body, and lastly, the murderous attempt made upon Bautrelet by the clerk to the examining magistrate, also announced two further pieces of news. The disappearance of Ganimard and the kidnapping of Sherlock Holmes in broad daylight in the heart of London, at the moment when he was about to take the train to Dover. Lupin's gang, therefore, which had been disorganized for a moment by the extraordinary ingenuity of a seventeen-year-old schoolboy, was now resuming the offensive and was winning all along the line from the first. Lupin's two great adversaries, Holmes and Ganimar, were put away. Isidore Bautrelet was disabled, The police were powerless. For the moment, there was no one left capable of struggling against such enemies. This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you've enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hollow Needle, Part 3 of 7, by Maurice LeBlanc. If you have enjoyed this book, please visit our website at classictalesaudiobooks.com and sign up to be a financial supporter. Donate $5 a month and you get a monthly coupon code for $8 off any audiobook order. You'll be glad you did. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. When facing a family law matter, it can feel like an overwhelming and never-ending court process. It's vital to know that things will look better on the other side if you hire legal counsel with the skill and compassion to help. It's Stangee Law Firm. We represent clients in difficult family law matters every day. Visit FamilyLawRepresentation.com to schedule your consultation. It's FamilyLawRepresentation.com. Stenge Law Firm, here to help you rebuild your life. Stangey Law Firm has an office in Wichita, Kirk Stangey, 120 South Central Avenue, Suite 450 Clayton, Missouri.